You're listening to Coach Your Brains Out. This is part two of our episode with coach developer and host of the Talent Equation podcast, Stuart Armstrong. Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. And it seems like with this approach, the feedback gets a little tricky. What do you recommend for coaches who want to improve and use feedback during an activity without being, I guess, really prescriptive? Well, the beauty of this is that the feedback is inherent within the activity. So if an athlete is attuning to the information present in the environment, that's all the information they need. It's all the feedback they need. So actually, this turns feedback on its head. Harjeev Singh, who lives in your world, uh, talks about feedback far better than I can. Um, but we are definitely very synergistic in our thinking on this. Um, I'm hoping to have him on the show soon because I really want to kind of get into his brain a bit. Um, uh, but in terms of so the difference in this in this world is feedback isn't something you give. It's something you receive as an athlete and as a coach. So what I would be doing with feedback is saying I would be soliciting information from the athlete about their experience. And the reason I do that is because I want to know what they are perceiving, what they're attending to, what they're experiencing. And that information is essential for me to then to then tweak the activity or to be able to ask them, say, a question which might draw their attention to salient information. So um, when you're working ecologically, you're not telling people what to do or how to do it. What you're doing is you're, show, you're helping them to find the relevant information that will give them the clues they need to solve the problem for themselves. So I might draw their attention with a question. What do you notice about the way, the ha about the way they move before they jump to block? Now, they're informa now, they're, now their attention is placed there. They go up and perform the action over a couple of trials and they come back down or, you know, and, and you say, okay, so what did you notice? It's my favorite question in the world, by the way. What did you notice? Now, the only way you can get that question wrong is to not notice anything because it means basically you've been playing with your eyes shut or you've been like, you know, half asleep while you're doing it. So what did you notice? And you come out and say, well, I'll tell you what I noticed. They're shifting and then they're jumping. Uh, okay, so what does that now allow you to do? Now you do this. So notice the feedback's coming to me. I'm not giving them any feedback. I'm just asking them a question and drawing their, drawing their attention towards something that might be relevant for them to help them with their action. Or it might be about their body, for example, or where their, you know, the hand is moving or whatever it is. Hajiv will talk a lot about ex external versus internal focuses of attention because he's been very fortunate to work with Gabrielle Wolf. Amazing piece of amazing research. But you might say, you know, what, what do you notice about the way your fingertips are pointing or whatever it is, whatever the action might help. So feedback is an interesting concept, actually, because if you're very used to providing information via feedback, that was good. Try a bit higher, lift a bit lower, this, that and the other as an information provider, a knower, a knowledgeable one as opposed to using your knowledge as a means by which to help the learner find solutions by maybe drawing their attention. By the way, it's not just questions that draw their attention. You might draw their attention by shaping the practice. So you might make the blockers make a very big movement, for example, before they jump to really make it obvious. Now, what do you notice? Do you notice anything different that time? Yeah, big movement. Okay. 
So what are they doing? They're moving. Okay, so now when you go back in there, I just want to notice the movement. So that's the other way you can do it. Design the practice in a different way and see if they notice. You're always, always trying to get them to, to tune into the relevant information in the environment that gives them the action possibility. That is an affordance, a possibility for action, an invitation for action. Um, so you imagine an affordance, I know you're going to ask me this question, so I'm just getting in there first. Um, an affordance is just an opportunity for action, you know, a glass, a cup, anything else. It's got opportunities for action. On the one hand, it can be a receptacle for liquid, but on the other side, it's a great way of trapping a spider. You know, so there's got lots of different opportunities for action with anything. That's objects. But in, in, in any environment, there's, there's loads of affordances. There's a massive landscape of them. And sometimes our job is to narrow the landscape down so that we explore just in one area before we then go and then start to extend out into the environment while we're, and you've, you've heard me use the word exploration a lot. It's a big part of the ecological approach. You're exploring together. Yeah, those are some great uh, tips. I love the, what did you notice? I think that's really helpful. Something I'll go use in practice today more often. Um, so, so something I've found is I've attempted to implement, you know, more constraints led approach and even some differential learning is, uh, I guess I, I know as a coach, it's really important to show that I care about them. And in the past, I, you know, I provide solutions and, and it feels like this, like, you know, I'm helping you. I really care for you. I'm helping you grow. I'm telling you how to do it. And it feels a little bit like um, you're leaving them out in the wild and they're frustrating and, and, and they're frustrated and, and you're not there helping them as much. So I, I guess I wonder how would you navigate that relationship still showing you care, but not, not providing all the solutions. Yeah, it's a really good one, isn't it? Um, and it can come across like that, actually. So you do have to be careful about if you are going to transition from a more linear approach to a more ecological approach. If you just go straight ecological, they'll feel as if you don't care anymore and you've lost interest. I've, I've had that experience myself mm. uh, with catastrophic effects, not necessarily catastrophic, but from a results base I went from winning a league and top of you know winning a league taking it taking a team up um staying up you know challenging for the next league up um you know kind of putting a lot of people under a load of pressure left that role went to a new role <laughs> lower level team as well <laughs> straight down I was like whoa so uh, and all because I had my newfangled ideas and everything else um so I've definitely had that experience um, so you do have to manage it, right? I was just too br too brutal. You know, I went from directive, instructional, super organized to like just asking the odd question. It would have felt really rudderless to them. And I get that. Uh, so you do need to sort of manage the two. The difference is, is that actually the ecological approach, you care more, strangely, but you're caring in a kind of weird way. So you're caring in a way like, uh, like I can easily say to my uh, daughter when she's drawing a picture, uh, you know, she was making a mood board the other day, actually, um, uh, at my wife's suggestion. Don't let this happen, by the way. Um, <laughs> she's making a mood board about what her room was going to look like, her new room that she's going to have decorated. And she found all the most expensive magazines you could possibly imagine and clipped out all these amazing bits of furniture. Their room's going to be like better than our entire house, I reckon. Anyway, but I, we could have, when she was creating this new world of hers, we could have been very instructional about that. We could be very direct about it. When she was drawing, so she's very creative. When she's drawing things, I could say, no, no, you need to think about this and perspective and all those sorts of things. And I could give her all that sort of stuff. 
Or she could come to me with her idea and I could say, mm, that's interesting. Uh, what do you think about it? Said, well, I'm not sure about this. And um, I really, by the way, I really encourage um, anybody to look up, and if you haven't seen it already, Austin's Butterfly. It's a fantastic video, if you've seen it, yeah, about like the process of making something better, starting off with something, getting some feedback, moving, moving it on, moving it on, moving on. And the feedback of the peers, interestingly. Yeah. Um, and I've actually got a, yeah, I've got a picture of her and I call it Isla's Butterfly, uh, Isla's Kingfisher, because she drew a Kingfisher and she's got three different pictures of it, how she made it better each time. And I think it's a really valuable thing to learn about the process of try something out get initial concept build on it build on it build on it and that's a great way of kind of learning and, and, and building a scaffold now i think that's the ultimate act of care to allow somebody to create their idea and build on their idea and come up with something they're so proud of because it's all theirs i actually believe that the care when you actually when you're more of a directive individual and you're kind of a bit more snowplowish and taking away the difficulty weirdly that's actually less caring because you're almost preventing them from having the great experience so actually you remove some of the joy for them so i know that sounds very perverse and almost counterintuitive but that's certainly the way i look at it but to the receiver it can definitely feel like that so you have to be quite explicit sometimes about why you would be doing this because i do get that just tell me i know you know the answer they say to me just tell me i say ah, but if i did Right. You might just be about to come up with something amazing. Right. It's just there right in front of you. You might just become amazing. And I would have stopped you doing it. I don't want to do that. I care about you too much. Mm. And I've had that experience very nearly robbed one of my one of my kids from coming up with. And it's only because he misunderstood what I was saying to him that he went out and did it himself and just came up with something that was just off this off this planet. And I was like, I nearly messed that up. So that's the way I look at it. And does it help um, sharing the science with your athletes or does that get them even more frustrated? No, not really. Um, I don't think they need to know all that, to be honest. Um, so they just need to trust. This, you just tell them this is the style we're using. Like you preemptively tell them like a new athlete coming in that you might be getting less um, you know, information than you have previously. You kind of just warn them with that. You don't go into like out of the motor learning patterns. They, they never ask me. Um, this is, and again, I can only tell you from my experience. They never ask me because they're having too much fun. Um, you know, I, and so I, I genuinely don't find that they have a, a major issue. Uh, now, don't get me wrong. There'll be times when we're having a bit of a struggle. And that might be then when, you know, we, we might have a little bit of dialogue. But what I'll be doing is I'll just be articulating to them a little bit like what I've said to you earlier on. Like, you know, we're nearly there, right? So what is it you can do to help? each other how can we guide this and don't get me wrong there'll be times when maybe i'll just throw something in there uh, or give them an idea or a clue or a you know and, and a, a, you know you can ask me a question or i'll give you a clue or you know what do you see going on over there or whatever it is you know i might guide it a little bit because you know they're not getting there and it's a struggle and you're right it's not fair to leave somebody in the wilderness and just let them struggle away and <laughs> slowly wither and die you definitely wouldn't want to do that that is definitely not caring right um uh, but it's, you know, that's the equivalent of <laughs> watching somebody drowning and they'll be there in a minute. They'll pop up. They'll be fine. Uh, you can't do that. Um, that would be equally irresponsible, 
but they i don't think i mean certainly my kids anyway i mean older kids i might um i mean i work with 14 year olds and, and younger so i mean they're getting older they might i might start they might start asking me more scientific questions when they're 16 17 um, and if you're working with college athletes they might want to know yeah so i guess you might want to be able to provide them with some of the sort of the theoretical underpinning but i think you can you can sometimes fill athletes heads with too much stuff so actually i would just i would happily say look the rationale here is, look, there's two ways of doing this. Uh, I could either teach you it and you could try it out or you could explore it and then we could see what you come up with and we'll work with that. Which one do you want to do? In inevitably, they often say to me, oh, no, I want to try and come up my own way. It's fine. Let's go then. might be harder, though. might take longer. That's OK. I'll go with it. So I do sometimes present them with the choice. Yeah, you, you have so much information, so much knowledge, so much to share. But then when I hear you, it's, you know, you're just saying little bits here and there. Uh, and then it, it, it reminds me of like maybe the, the classic coach you see in like, you know, Hollywood movies, they give this pregame long speech or postgame practice or um, is there a space for that? Like, do you use that space for, you know, longer times of discussions or I guess, I guess, how do you treat like pregame, postgame, postpractice? Um, yeah, how do you look, go about those sort of scenarios? Uh, to be honest, that's a bit of a work on, um, but it's an area that, um, uh, is very interesting for me. So again, I, I try and make that as ecological as possible. So um, I've used some platforms in the past. Um, there's, there's lots of them out there. The one I've worked with is Coach Logic. And the great thing about Coach Logic is it actually facilitates peer-to-peer -peer interaction via digital. So they can review video. They can even clip up and upload their own video, share their video, get peer review on their video. And then when, when we come to then having some sort of maybe time together or we've got an opportunity to do the post-game review or whatever it is, they've already come with a load of ideas and they're going to present them to each other. So they're kind of leading it and driving it and all that sort of stuff. And then I'm just a bit of a guide. In the past, I found video stuff to be quite difficult because quite often I'll be saying, look, this is what I want to show you this. I want to show you that. Sometimes I'll be saying, look, this is great. This is an area of improvement. That sometimes caused difficulty. And I'd find I could see players zoning out, they get bored, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas when they're leading the activity, they're much more engaged, it seems to me. Um, so that's that's definitely an approach that I've taken is to be much, much more athlete-led when it comes to the things like post-game, pre-game, during games, in huddles. They are the leaders of their of their huddling. So, for example, you know, in a game like field hockey, which is quite dynamic, you don't have a lot of time still to be able to to kind of um, huddle. Or anything like that. It's not tight. There's no timeouts really. I mean, you know, you might have quarters where you've got a chance to, um, and you, but you've got a short amount of time to get information across. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get them to do like micro huddles, and if not like hot reviews live in the action, where they're constantly in flow of communication with each other, um, and try and facilitate that and encourage that and even work on that. And that's like sometimes that's the session outcome. Nothing technical and tactical. Well, it is because we're doing the activity, but it's all about the the comms, and like so very very short. Um, huddle times and I, I used to do like you know big long long-winded five-minute huddles but now it's very much like you know like like you got um okay uh quick break we're doing a training session you know we're playing whatever like quick break 15 second timeout 14 13 12 11 they've got to get info very quick and then back out info very quick back out trying to give it the realism trying to make it like it would be in the game so they're constantly in that flow of comms constantly in that flow of reactions to that here's something we've got to watch you know just one source of information off we go bang into something else 
So I'm trying to do that a lot more now, a lot more athlete-led in-game, a lot more athlete-led in-huddle, uh, in-break, a lot more athlete-led in half-times, a lot, a lot of athlete-led post, pre, you know, and then I'll get my stuff in because sometimes, you know, you have to get stuff in, right? But you've got to give that space first. Um, and that's something that, but again, still a bit of a work on because I've still got the old, uh, the old approach. You know, it's, it's there, it's underneath, you know, and it comes out every now and again. And then for those of us uh, who are excited about this approach, um, is there anything we as coaches can be doing to use uh, this constraints-led approach on ourselves uh, to help our coaching growth? Is that possible or is it only for athletes? No, I, in fact, I actually think for coach, coach development and coach learning, it's, it's, got its, it's brilliant for that. Um, for a kickoff, it's more experiential, which is, let's face it, that's how we learn. Most of us have done courses, forgotten 90% of it, gone out and started practicing and realized actually a lot of it doesn't quite apply as we originally learned it. And so then we're, on, we're learning on the, on the fly anyway. So actually tapping into peer review, you know, with coaches live in the moment, afterwards, you know, pre whatever is massive. Um, you know, um, reflection. Um, there's lots of things that we're experimenting with at the moment, like people wearing chest mounted uh, phone harnesses or GoPro harnesses or whatever it is, so that you can provide like video afterwards of coach activity um, or live streaming whilst you're wearing camera so that you can get and having an earpiece and getting, you know, kind of a coach, a coach developer you know, kind of drawing your attention to certain things live in the moment, that rich experiential learning, as opposed to, you know, um, you know, in the moment, as opposed to the learning that's always very formal about theoretical concepts. That's very much where a lot of coach development is actually going uh, anyway, because of the recognition of the value of that. Um, and having someone alongside you guiding the journey, not necessarily saying, you need to do this, you need to do that, but just sort of asking questions and posing ideas. I mean, I, I'm a, I use this approach when I do coach development myself. So for example, I was working with a coach a few years ago and I just, um, I was observing, making some notes. And then at one point I just started my video camera. I was a long way away. I couldn't hear what he was saying. He had a huddle with the group and I started my camera on my phone and I just stood and watched from quite a distance away. And then afterwards he, he came, I couldn't talk to him in this session afterwards we talked to him and I just said I just want to share this with you and I put the video on and we were stood there for six minutes it was cold right six minutes looking at this video and I said what did you notice and he went it's going on a long time isn't it I went <laughs> and I said and that happened six times so that's 30 minutes of standing and talking in an hour and a half session so you've basically lost 30 minutes of your, of your hour hour and a half uh, of your 90 minutes he's like I never would have, I never would have known. I said, well, no, you're not doing it wrong. You're doing, you know, you're doing a great thing. You're asking, you're being athlete centered and you're asking for their information. Problem is it's just going on for too long. You'd almost be better off doing 10 of those for a minute. Um, you know, you probably get the same outcome. Mm. Um, and he was like, well, well, there you go. Now I, if I wasn't with him there in a session, I would never have seen that. I would have noticed, wouldn't have noticed it. And it's nothing to do with his practice or his questioning or any of his kind of technical coaching capabilities because they were all pretty much on point. This was just a kind of mechanics thing. And it was, but I reckon it was pretty transformative for the athletes who were probably sitting around, kicking around, getting bored, talking about various things. 
Um, so I do genuinely believe the ecological approach really, really works for coaches. And I, and I think we were only at the start of actually exploring some of these ideas. Yeah, because it made me think about when you uh, were talking about timing, maybe a huddle or something like that. Um, yeah, like that's a constraint as a coach you can use to be more concise or just like you said, maybe identifying just like you would identify a problem or something you want to work on as an athlete, maybe in, for a coach, you can identify some of the areas you want to cover and then create constraints around it in practice. It's kind of exciting. Yeah. And I think if coaches were more prepared, for example, to like get video of themselves in a range of different ways and then like put it out in their peer group, what do you reckon to this? And the peers will notice things that you haven't noticed and it'll be so rich, but you've got to be vulnerable and you've got to be able to take it on. Um, and I, I do a lot of that activity with like communities of learning, communities of practice, if you like, community, I call them communities of learning, social learning spaces. And I quite often will get like coaches, for example, to design an activity around a particular problem and then get the group to sort of provide, you know, questions, affirmations, suggestions as a means. But what you end up having then is you have about 55 different ideas that have emerged from this group. Sometimes that's overload, but you really take away six or seven real kernels, having initially create, created your idea and getting everyone to build off it. All of a sudden, you get something absolutely magnificent that you would never have considered. And I find that really valuable as well. Like it. So we uh, we wanted to get into affordances and touch on them, you know, while we have you. Uh, and you mentioned affordances are you know, basically opportunities for actions. And, and I'd heard you talk... Uh, uh, I think it was on Rob Rob Gray's Journal Club about you know kind of some of the issues with the word constraint and maybe trying to change uh, change it to the affordance led approach. Uh, I guess w why why is that why why do you think that word maybe uh, hits the the point a little bit closer? Well, so there's a lot of conjecture about the word affordance. P people like find it very off putting. I think it's a bit like you know highfalutin and highbrow and. Um, and it's just like anything, right? Every domain has its own lingo. Um, so, you know, if we talk about an affordance being, you know, anything affords you a possibility. Um, and so it's an action, a possibility for action, an action or an action invitation, as Duarte Ruyo would say. Um, and you're designing action possibility. So you're just sort of creating space where there's lots of action possibility. And sometimes you have a lot of action possibility. Sometimes you have less action possibility and you're just creating a space and you use constraints to define how much action possibility and how much information is present in the environment. Now, the problem is that you talk to people about a constraints-led approach. And well, what's that then? Well, what you do is you use, you know, for example, you might manipulate space and different rules and you might constrain and create conditions. Oh, it's a condition game. Oh, okay, fine. Oh, yeah, we do that. We do two-touch. Um, and this is like in a soccer context. Oh, yeah, I've been doing that for ages. Yeah, we do constraints. We do two-touch. Well, that's constraining to constrain. When you say it's two-touch only, basically, you're not allowed to dribble. So you're taking away decision-making by forcing people to a certain way. Now, that might be a good constraint at some point. It might be a good way of thinking about it. Um, I mean, I don't know whether you ever play one-touch volleyball. Probably would be a boring game, wouldn't it? Or five-touch volleyball. Oh, God, that'd be interesting. You play five-touch volleyball? Haven't. We've done one-touch. You've done one-touch? Yeah, but not yeah. five. The games I play are always one-touch because, you know, I'm playing <laughs> with people who aren't particularly – they just bat it straight back over. I get, pass it! And then the minute we try and pass it, we always lose the point. So they go, no, I'll go back to just smacking it back over again. <laughs> so we've done that. Um, but like, I've no, there you go. It's an interesting constraint. What would happen if you played five-touch volleyball? Hmm. 
Tell you what, go and have a go. See what happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious actually. I, don't, I wonder how that would change things. Uh, what's the worst? What's the worst that could happen? You know, what would be interesting is that, you know, it's predictable. You know, when the setter is going to set to a hitter. I guess if you had an option of five or less, you know, you wouldn't be as clear like when to block or how to defend it. It would lead to some, I don't know, some interesting situations there. Yeah, yeah. I'd, be, I'd work it both ways, by the way. I'd have five touch volleyball. You have to use five touches mm -hmm. and then five or less volleyball and then see what the difference is and then go back to three and explore the difference. So what you'd then be doing is a bit of differential learning because you've got different, different opportunities for action in both and then ask the athletes what they notice about the different opportunities. You'd hope, wouldn't you, in five touch volleyball, you'd have very, very good sets. Yeah. You'd hope. <laughs> yeah, you think you could, uh, you could really pick your spot. Now, that one wasn't quite good enough pass. All right, let's put it over here. Yeah, yeah. So this is, this is where, you know, somebody who's not steeped in your sport comes along with a ridiculous idea, right? <laughs> but it might have some possibility. So let's have a go with it and see what happens. Now, you might do it once or twice, decide this is absolute garbage and, dis and, and get rid of it. But it might also give you a new insight into something else that you can then use for something else. And this is the beauty of the ecological approach is you're an experimenter often. often. You're going to try something out. Now you, now, you do have to map it to intent. So you're not just doing it for no reason. You might say, we might be doing this. Why? We want to see how the athletes respond to the fact that they've now got a lot more touches. And we would like to see what happens to the quality of their tactical decision making about where and how they set. Let's say that was your game problem. So we're going to have a game five touches football. We're going to observe these things. So now we're going to watch, right? Let's see what happens. They probably hate it, by the way, for a while <laughs> because it's so weird. But they'd work it out, and then you start to discover a few things. Then it might be their new favorite game, and then you're in real trouble. Anyway, let's just um, – I'll stop talking about that. But that's an affordance. Five-touch volleyball would provide different opportunities for action than three-touch volleyball would or two-touch volleyball. Now, if you were to play two- or one-touch volleyball – then you've only got a, a certain array of action possibilities, really. And actually, those action possibilities, the limitations of those action possibilities may be that you're actually taking away important decision-making variables that need to be present. You know, So one of the core aspects of volleyball is whoever the first receiver from the opposition is, whether it's on serve or it's on uh, a ball that's delivered in play, whoever that first receiver is has got to do something that is related to their teammates, right? So on some occasions, depending on where the ball's been played, it might just be keep the damn thing off the floor, get it as high in the air as you possibly can to give our teammates a possibility of getting underneath it to deliver a ball that, would we allow, we, that will create some kind of an attack. But if it's not where you're scrambling like that and you actually got another opportunity for action, it might be, I need to deliver a really high quality ball so that we can set up the best possible attack. Now, knowing the difference between those moments is absolutely key and how you act in those moments is absolutely key. Now, if you take some of that away, you haven't got the decision-making element. And likewise in soccer, if you take away dribbling, then you never have a situation. So the, the defenders react to that. So they don't, they no longer really try and stop you from receiving the ball. Uh, they, ne they don't really try and tackle you. What they do is they get into passing lanes and stop you from passing the ball because they know you can't run with it, right? That's unrealistic because, you know, you've got 10 yards of space in front of you or 20 yards of space, run forward and attack. That's a, that's a good decision in that situation, right? If you're not allowed to because the constraint. That's constraining to constrain. So what we want to try and do where we can is to constrain to afford. You put a constraint in place so that you're drawing the athlete's attention towards the information that's present 
that might help them with various action possibilities. So I talk about an affordance-led approach instead of a constraints-led approach, because actually it's what you're trying to do is to use the affordances, the information that's present in the environment, and then you're going to design a practice that helps athletes attune to the information to make them more skillful and adaptable. And that's the difference. Yeah, that's a great distinction. And those examples are really helpful. And I think you kind of answered this question, but I'm still going to ask it. Um, <laughs> so, you know, like you said, you want to identify the problem. And then as a coach, you know, I'm preparing practice and I, I think, okay, this is the, you know, this is the, a, a constraint that will allow them to afford and respond in, in a way that'll be more effective. But, but then you, you implement it and then you see them responding in a way where you're like, wow, that's not effective at all. Like I didn't see them, you know, maybe they're not interacting in the problem the way you thought they would, or they're using a, maybe a technique that's just really ineffective. What do you do in, in those scenarios? Explore it. Sometimes when you see that ineffective thing, that's so valuable. So hmm, that's interesting. If, what, if you've seen what's happening here, yeah, we're doing this. Okay. Why is that happening? Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Okay. What else can you do? Right. Let's try something else. So hmm. you're finding out why, right? You're getting information all the time. Why is that happening? And then you might find that they're just looking in the wrong place. Hmm. Are we doing this because of that? Oh, okay. That's interesting. Or you might find they're not even considering the opponents. They're just doing, they're just working in their own environment. And actually they need to place more information over there, more of their attention over there to help them with the decision-making. You might find that, um, that, you know, they're, they're just experimenting. You might find that they're exploring different, they've just gone down a bit of a rabbit hole. You might want to pull them out of it. But the, when they do things like that, that's that's so valuable that's got low there's that's like information rich that space when they're you know kind of doing it a way that you're like whoa why would you do that mm -hmm. it's so good it's great but you'd never get that if you work in a technique-led model or an instructional mm -hmm. approach define the action you talk this is the right way to do it all you now need to do is to try and do it as right as i've said so and I'm going to get annoyed with you if you don't. <laughs> That's a bit mean, but you know what I mean. <laughs> you know, so you predefine pre success. Whereas, in, so you never, well, you, you might get the, I can't do it exactly how you've asked me to approach. You know, they might get that response. But in the other way around, you're actually going to get way, way, way more information because they're going to just do things that you might not expect. They might come up with something that you see as being suboptimal initially, but turns out to be, really optimal just very different and you've not seen it before yeah that's great that's really helpful um all right so we want to close with we just have a listener question uh, our buddy casey Kreider, who connected us and uh, is a great coach and and someone who's really helped us in our journey in uh, a more ecological approach to coaching he's got two questions for you we'll start with the first one he said uh, what what red flags should we look for when consuming coach education development material development material on mediums like Twitter and Facebook? I'll, um, Casey, I'll be, I'll be getting my own back by the way. Um, when I talk to him next, uh, that's a good, that's a doozy. That is a doozy. Uh, what red flags? I, I it's very hard to answer, but what I would say is this, Look at it through the lens of the problems that your sport, your game presents to athletes. So if you see information out there relevant to your sport, you see people sharing activities and this, that, and the other, and you look at it through the, right, what, what problems are the athletes discovering and learning here? 
in this idea that's been presented or this article or this video, whatever it might be. And it's not, it's not obvious that that idea has relevance to what it is you're trying to do in the game. Then I would be skeptical of it. Likewise, if you're consuming research and it's, uh, well, one thing I always think is I quite often look at research and I read, I read the, sometimes read it backwards. So I read their conclusions and then I read then the rest of it and go, how they arrived at that? It doesn't work. I do see quite a lot of overclaiming uh in in the world of research you know like oh, we, we did this experiment we did this 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 and from this we deduced that this is the thing that more research more research is required right that's like the, the the great research caveat more research is required um but sometimes their conclusions just don't map with where they've got to so i would be very very worried about that i would also i would say i'd be very wary of research done in an in, a, in an environment that is not contextual because I genuinely believe that the sports context is so essential if you're learning about skill acquisition or you're learning about human development or whatever it is. Oh, and the other one you'll see a lot of is people will take stuff from the world of education and where it's predominantly a cognitive endeavor, not physical education, mathematics or whatever, and go, this is good for the mathematics classroom. It must be good for our world here. What? Where people are trying to run around move their bodies, use kinesthetic awareness and a range of different senses and coordinate with others and decide what to do against the others who are doing things that are trying to stop us from doing things. And you think mathematic learning maths is the same. So don't buy into any of that stuff because that, that you see that all the time and it's just crazy. Um, I don't think I've answered that question very well. No, there's a couple um, of good ones. <laughs> Casey's always got tough questions, so. He has. Uh, and Casey's second question is, if you had to pick one coach who personified the way you think coaching should happen, who is it? Very hard to pick one. Um, the one that jumps into my mind most immediately, um, in my world particularly, um it's a guy called um Danny Kerry who uh is the was the uh, GB women's hockey coach field hockey coach and is now the GB men's field hockey coach and he went on a really 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 interesting long journey of not having a lot of success getting very very critical feedback and having to reinvent himself and rebuild and this that and the other he's got some very interesting videos out there in the hockey world about talking about that journey being quite open about it quite vulnerable um and his approach uh to the way he you know trying to develop a thinking group of athletes and you know we won a gold medal um at the rio olympics uh against all the odds really and um you, you start to see a lot of that. I went, I've been to watch him in action a number of times and you've heard him coach live while you're observing. And I've been very fortunate to be able to chat to him personally and stuff and extremely humble, extremely committed to his craft, extremely curious um, and just very, very committed to designing environments to help athletes become 
their very, very best and to thrive. And Henry is great. And actually, I would say there's another another one I must say as well in a similar world because I had the pleasure of working alongside her is Sarah Kelleher, who's been on the show. Um, and her approach to athlete development, she was the England under-18s girls coach until fairly recently. And um, just what she does off the field, like, as you know, as well. I mean, she's brilliant on the field. and But on the, off the field, the environment that she creates and the, the creativity that she brings to the development of a group of athletes and, you know, the ownership they have and the way she facilitates that kind of culture and that the, the, the dynamics that last way beyond their time in the team. Um, and I think that's massively undervalued. Lots of people look at that and go, oh, yeah, that's the, you know, oh, yeah, that's the pink and fluffy. Oh, yeah, very nice. But that's not real coaching. You know, performance coaching is all about results and this, that and the other. But she absolutely brings the athletes 100% with her. They're very similar, actually, in lots of ways in their approach. And, um, you know, and very much places them at the center of the even if it's going to be a, a tough week you know she might be doing grit camp or grit week and it's going to be brutal but very much bringing the athletes and getting them to be heavily influenced and heavily involved in that sort of stuff so yeah she's a in my in my opinion she's a master practitioner um and so is danny so uh, they're two people i would i would suggest we spend some time looking up yeah i know um mark williams wrote about danny in uh, his newer book which I love that was one of my favorite parts of the book, actually, that that story. Um, yeah, I've heard you talk about him, too. I'd love to connect with him and learn. I don't know. He's probably a busy guy and doesn't want to talk to volleyball coaches, but I'm I'd trying to get him on the show. But yeah, he's a busy guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, ho hopefully you get him on. I'd love to hear a conversation between you and him. Yeah. Well, well, thanks for going through all these questions and um, spending this time, your passion, your honesty and yeah, just your enthusiasm and your knowledge about uh, coaching is is so clear. And I'm excited for um, all the coaches in the volleyball community to to listen to this and learn from this and to go implement it and and to like you said, um, kind of do it in their way and, and find what works for them. So yeah, we're really appreciative for you spending the time with us. I'm uh, I'm delighted to chat to you about it. And um, yeah, I'm I'm hoping that people might have a have a little go. And one thing I'd say to them is don't feel like, you know, you've got to jump straight into the deep end and like be wallowing about and not knowing what you're doing, you know, just, just come and get in the shallow end and have a little play around and, you know, all that sort of stuff. The only thing I'd say is don't, don't hang around on the outside, just dipping your toe in the water. That's too timid, right? You've got to get in, you've got to be involved. Um, but there's a lot of fun to be had in there. So um, yeah, give it a go. You got to find Where the right, the right challenge point. Yeah, and where can listeners find your podcast and connect with you? You said you're on Twitter a lot too. Yeah, so Stu underscore arm on Twitter is my handle. Um, my, my website is thetalentedequation.co.uk um, and the podcast can be found on all good podcatchers. Just search Talent Equation, uh, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher um, and uh, Spreaker, my own platform and a range of others. So yeah, um, get on there, share it. Um, ask me questions because I sometimes record podcasts where I'm um, I've got like a private podcast feed where I ask where I answer some people's questions from time to time so um, yeah uh, I'd love to hear from people